The reading is taken from John chapter 4, verses 5 to 29. John 4, 5 to 29. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is coming from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me I ever, everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. Lovely to hear you singing more than anything. How wonderful was that? I think we can get a bit louder in the next one, don't you? I think we can. Um, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that it's a, a guide, a lamp to our life. And we pray that as we look at this last chapter of our book together today, that you would speak to us all, Lord. So use my words, Lord. Pierce our hearts, change our lives for your glory, we ask. Amen. Amen. That's not my phone. Um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, known to many of you as the creator of Sherlock Holmes, loved practical jokes. You may know this. And, and it's quite a well-known story, but I love it, um, that once he sent a telegram, telegram as, a, as a joke to 12 of his friends, all very well-respected gentlemen in society, and the telegram simply read this. It said, flee, all has been discovered. And to his shock, uh, within 24 hours, all 12 are reported to have left the country. <laughs> the story may or may not be true. Uh, these things tend to grow beyond themselves. But it does help to illustrate the final challenge from our current series, The Christian Atheist. And that is the issue of shame. It, the chapter's entitled, I'm a Christian but I still have shame in my life. Many people, as Conan Doyle discovered, have something in their life that haunts their conscience, including many of us Christians, if we're honest. Guilt, maybe, and shame. And the message of the Bible is clear. Our freedom from shame was on the heart of God when Jesus died on the cross. That was the extent he went to, to see us released from it. So shame is not something we need to carry. Guilt and shame are often paired together, but they aren't actually the same thing. Um, you probably realise this. This was helpful for me as I prepared, that guilt is about what you have done or haven't done. It's an action um, that is wrong, whereas shame is the feeling or conviction that you are a bad person. It's about who you are rather than what you've done. And shame can come about in different ways. There is the shame that you feel as a result of your own guilt or sin. But there's also shame that is a result of something uh, that has been done to you, which can be the consequence of someone else's sin, and you're the innocent party, but still can feel shame. Or even perhaps because of a deep-rooted but incorrect belief about your own lack of self-worth. So shame is a little more complicated than just being a result of our own sin. But all of those types of shame, Jesus took upon himself um, so that we wouldn't have to have them to bear them in our lives. So I'm going to go back to the beginning of the Bible, which is um, really helpful for this topic, because every one of us has been created in the image of God. We know that the Bible tells us this. And in that act, when we're created in his image, God gave us the great honor that we might look like him, which is really amazing, isn't it? And at the beginning of Genesis, of course, Adam and Eve famously walked about in the garden completely naked, and they felt no shame at all, not before God or not before, and not before each other. 
But then the serpent, we know the story, representing the devil, entered in with his plan to bring shame into the human story through sin. And it's a tactic he still pursues today. John 10.10, one of my favorite verses, uh, reminds us, as Jesus said, that the thief or the devil comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came, he said, that we might have life and have it to the full. In other words, the, the devil still has his tactic to try and mess up our lives, to steal the quality of life in all its fullness. So back in the Garden of Eden, the woman is tempted, we remember, and the man, Adam, quickly follows. Their eyes were opened and they saw their nakedness and shame entered in with sin. And what was the first thing they did? They hid from God. And that is shame, right there. That's what made them do it. If you, it makes you want to hide from God and also very often from one another too. Instead of enjoying an intimate, safe and life-giving relationship with God, we feel terrible about ourselves and want to hide from the only one who can truly, absolutely, really bring us life in all its fullness. And then God asked Adam and Eve what I think is one of the saddest questions in the whole Bible. Um, where are you? He was used to having them right there with him, and all of a sudden they were hiding. He then provided animal skins to cover their shame. We remember that story, which is a lovely gesture and shows God's heart of love, but also a powerful pointer of what was to come, that all was not lost in that moment when shame had entered in. Because as one li a creature's life was taken to cover their shame in that skin, it demonstrated that God had a plan. And from Genesis 3 through to the end of the Old Testament, we see how God was intent to revert to reverse that and to fulfill his plan uh, to, to be, have his people be shameless without shame for all eternity. So fast forward to our reading, quite a long one, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's a great story, one of my favorites in the Bible, um, where Jesus in a town called Samaria meets a woman drawing water from the well at midday. And we know from the weather last week that doing anything at midday outside is pretty horrendous, isn't it? Um, we, don't, we don't want that sunshine back in quite that intensity. And at the well in the heat, Jesus knew everything about her. Her life was a mess, that was clear. She'd been with many, many men. And that's why she only went to the well at midday when others were very unlikely to be there. Um, she had a bad reputation. She was a Samaritan to boot, which made it even worse, and a woman. And she must have been really surprised that Jesus wanted to even talk to her because that in itself would have been a shameful thing to do in society. But he does, and he tells her her life. He's, in a summary, he basically says, I know what you're doing, I know who you are, I know you sleep around, I know your shame. And as she draws water from the well in that heat, he said, I will give you water that will never run out. And she asks, where can I get this water? To which he replies, I am the water, and you will be satisfied with me. It's such a powerful story and picture that he knew everything she did that brought such shame, shameful activities in her community. Um, but really, he knew that it was a poor imitation of what she really thirsted for and needed, which was intimacy, approval, affirmation, the need to feel truly loved and to be known. It could have been any sin that she did, actually, that he addressed that day. 
but our heart would only be satisfied by the restoration of that which was broken back in Genesis. And in this tremendously important moment in the gospel, Jesus, I believe, is addressing all of us who sit in that same position when we've done things wrong in our lives, in our shame. Not condemning, not punishing, and not demanding that we sort ourselves out, sort of like a sort of a, a whip sort of action. The Samaritan lady knew that he saw everything about her. None of her sin was hidden. And yet she didn't feel ashamed. She didn't feel shamed by him at all. The way he encountered her, this is the living God before her, in her shame, made her feel quite the opposite, in fact. It made her feel loved. This is Jesus. Um, this is our Jesus, friend of sinners, and also defender against shame, our defender against shame. Remember quickly the story of the religious leaders who were about to stone the adulterous woman? You remember that one, it's well known as well. When Jesus literally steps in the way in front of her, separating her and them, and says, if you're without sin, in other words, if you haven't got that same shame and sinfulness in your lives, then you throw the first stone. But of course, none of them did. Jesus actually fights against the shame that is being poured out upon her, and he defends her. He's our defender in those moments too, and it's wonderful. We all mess up. We know that. 1 John 1 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. This is humanity that this is written to, the whole of humanity, every single one of us, Christian or not, we all have sin in our lives. And the devil still uses the same old tactics to say to us, shame on you. Look how terrible and shameful you are. Unworthy, unlovable, an absolute mess. You know, especially if you're Christian, you can't do that Christian stuff. Look how terrible you are. And many of us, if we're honest, if we find ourselves getting into a pattern of things in our life with sin, we try to compensate for that shame that we feel deep down on the inside. We may try to be worthy in our own strength to almost redress the balance, at working harder perhaps, looking like we have it all together, particularly on Sundays when we, we put our Sunday face on, trying to do more good deeds to improve our self-worth and to drown out that voice of the enemy that tells us how shameful we are. Or, for some of us, if we're honest, and we don't tend to talk about this on Sundays so much, we can be also driven to other things to fill that chasm that that shame sort of opens up in our hearts. Chasing desires or impulses, addictions, cravings, harming ourselves even at times, and making ourselves feel more and more ashamed in the process. It just doesn't fill the void and the pain. And both of these responses to either try to do good things or to sort of redress into, uh, regress into habits is a little bit like trying to keep a very large beach ball underwater. Have you ever done that? It's really, really hard work. So much energy is spent trying to push it down, push it down, keep it down all the time, but it just keeps popping up. It's relentless and it's exhausting. I think that's how it is when we have shame in our lives, trying to suppress it. And the only way to truly puncture the ball is to, is to bring Jesus in and the power of Jesus' love to take out that overwhelming internal accusation that we aren't good enough. Jesus stands between us and punches the ball and says, we don't have to carry that anymore. And finally, we hear God telling us the truth about ourselves, that we are 
loved. It's the message of the Bible. The woman at the well changed wonderfully. She was healed of her shame and she led her whole town to Jesus, but only because she heard the voice of truth and love. Truth, addressing what she did, there was no beating around the bush, but in love. And the Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's a really special verse. The kindness of God, not the leather strap of God that leads us to repentance. The God who says to me and to you, I know everything you have ever done and I love you just the same. Turn back to me. God delights in second chances, delights in repentance when we turn away from our sin and walk towards him. Not just when we first choose to follow him, but on a daily basis, maybe even on an hourly basis if we need to. We can choose to walk towards the Father and pursue intimacy with him, to listen to him and the words he speaks over our life. Regardless of how many times we may mess up, we hear again the truth of his love when he picks us up and says, you're not enslaved to that shame. That's not what I've got for you. The risen Christ has crushed the serpent's head. He did it on the cross. And the shame of the Garden of Eden has been reversed in our lives. It's a freedom that we might find hard to fully comprehend, but it's a promise for you and for me. It's our inheritance as sons and daughters of God, sealed by Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross. And it's available for us all today. So I'd love to end just by reading some scripture over you. Could I invite you to stand if you feel comfortable doing so? For some reason, I felt it was important to stand. I'm going to read a few verses from Romans 8. The power of the word of God declaring over all of us, and we know what's going on in our hearts and lives, the truth about what God says to us today. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen.